0: Section 5 of Five Continental Ops Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bodies Piled Up. The Montgomery Hotel's regular detective had taken his last week's rake off from the hotel bootlegger in merchandise instead of cash, had drunk it down, had fallen asleep in the lobby, and been fired. I happened to be the only idle operative in the Continental Detective Agency's San Francisco branch at the time, and thus it came about that I had three days of hotel coppering while a man was being found to take the job permanently. The Montgomery is a quiet hotel of the better sort, and so I had a very restful time of it. Until the third and last day. Then things changed. I came down into the lobby that afternoon to find Stacy, the assistant manager on duty at the time, hunting for me. One of the maids just phoned that there's something wrong up in 906, he said. We went up to that room together. The door was open, and the center of the floor stood a maid staring goggle-eyed at the closed door of the clothes press. From under it, extending perhaps a foot across the floor toward us, was a snake-shaped ribbon of blood. I stepped past the maid and tried the door. It was unlocked. I opened it. Slowly, rigidly, a man pitched out into my arms, pitched out backward, and there was a six-inch slit down the back of his coat, and the coat was wet and sticky. That wasn't altogether a surprise. The blood on the floor had prepared me for something of the sort. But when another followed him, facing me, this one, with a dark, distorted face, I dropped the one I had caught and jumped back. And as I jumped, a third man came tumbling out after the others. From behind me came a scream and a thud as the maid fainted. I wasn't feeling any too steady myself. I'm no sensitive plant, and I've looked at a lot of unlovely sights in my time, but for weeks afterward I could see those three dead men coming out of that clothes-press to pile up at my feet coming out slowly, almost deliberately, in a ghastly game of follow your leader. Seeing them, you couldn't doubt that they were really dead. Every detail of their falling, every detail of the heap in which they now lay, had a horrible certainty of lifelessness in it. I turned to Stacy, who Deathly White himself was keeping on his feet only by clinging to the foot of the brass bed. Get the woman out! Get doctors! Police! I pulled the three dead bodies apart, laying them out in a grim row, faces up. Then I made a hasty examination of the room. A soft hat, which fitted one of the dead men, lay in the center of the unruffled bed. The room key was in the door, on the inside. There was no blood in the room except what had leaked out of the clothes press, and the room showed no signs of having been the scene of a struggle. The door to the bathroom was open. In the bottom of the bathtub was a shattered gin bottle, which from the strength of the odor and the dampness of the tub had been nearly full when broken. In one corner of the bathroom I found a small whiskey glass and another under the tub. Both were dry, clean, and odorless. The inside of the closed press door was stained with blood from the height of my shoulder to the floor, and two hats lay in the puddle of blood on the closet floor. Each of the hats fitted one of the dead men. That was all. Three dead men, a broken gin bottle, blood. Stacy returned presently with a doctor, and while the doctor was examining the dead men, the police detectives arrived. The doctor's work was soon done. This man, he said, pointing to one of them, was struck on the back of the head with a small blunt instrument, and then strangled. This one, pointing to another, was simply strangled, and the third was stabbed in the back with a blade perhaps five inches long. They have been dead for about two hours since noon or a little after. The assistant manager identified two of the bodies. The man who had been stabbed, the first to fall out of the clothes press, had arrived at the hotel three days before, registering as Tudor Ingraham of Washington, D.C., and had occupied room 915, three doors away. The last man to fall out, the one who had been simply choked, was the occupant of this room. His name was Vincent Devlin. He was an insurance broker and had made the hotel his home since his wife's death some four years before. The third man had been seen in Devlin's company frequently, and one of the clerks remembered that they had come into the hotel together at about five minutes after twelve this day. Cards and letters in his pockets told us that he was Homer Ansley, a member of the law firm of Lancashire and Ansley whose offices were in the Miles building, next door to Devlin's office, in fact. Devlin's pockets held between $150 and $200. Ansley's wallet contained more than $100. Ingraham's pockets yielded nearly $300, and in a money belt around his waist we found $2,200 and two medium-sized unset diamonds. All three had watches. Devlin's was a valuable one. In their pockets— and Ingraham wore two rings, both of which were expensive ones. Ingraham's room key was in his pocket. Beyond this money, whose presence would seem to indicate that robbery hadn't been the motive behind the three killings, we found nothing on any of their persons to throw the slightest light on the crime, nor did the most thorough examination of both Ingraham's and Devlin's rooms teach us anything in ingram's room we found a dozen or more packs of carefully marked cards some crooked dice and an immense amount of data on racehorses also we found that he had a wife who lived on east delavan avenue in buffalo and a brother on cruncher street in dallas as well as a list of names and addresses that we carried off to investigate later but nothing in either room pointed even indirectly at murder Fells, the police department Bertillion man, found a number of fingerprints in Devlin's room, but we couldn't tell whether they would be of any value or not until he had worked them up. Though Devlin and Ansley had apparently been strangled by hands, Fells was unable to get prints from either their necks or their collars. The maid who discovered the blood said that she had straightened up Devlin's room between ten and eleven that morning, but had not put fresh towels in the bathroom it was for this purpose that she had gone to the room in the afternoon she had found the door unlocked with the key on the inside and as soon as she entered had seen the blood and telephoned stacy she had seen no one in the corridor nearby as she entered the room she had straightened up ingraham's room she said at a few minutes after one she had gone there earlier between ten twenty and ten forty five for that purpose but ingraham had not then left it the elevator man who had carried Ansley and Devlin up from the lobby at a few minutes after twelve remembered that they had been laughingly discussing their golf scores of the previous day during the ride. No one had seen anything suspicious in the hotel around the time in which the doctor had placed the murders, but that was to be expected. The murderer could have left the room, closing the door behind him, and walked away, secure in the knowledge that at noon a man in the corridors of the Montgomery would attract little attention. If he was staying at the hotel, he would simply have gone to his room. If not, he would have either walked all the way down to the street, or down a floor or two, and then caught an elevator. None of the hotel employees had ever seen Ingram and Devlin together. There was nothing to show that they had even the slightest acquaintance. Ingram habitually stayed in his room until noon, and did not return to it until very late at night. Nothing was known of his affairs. At the Miles building, we... That is, Marty O'Hara and George Dean of the Police Department Homicide Detail and I questioned Ansley's partner and Devlin's employees. Both Devlin and Ansley, it seemed, were ordinary men who lived ordinary lives, lives that held neither dark spots nor queer kinks. Ansley was married and had two children. He lived on Lake Street. Both men had a sprinkling of relatives and friends scattered here and there through the country, and so far as we could learn, their affairs were in perfect order. They had left their offices this day to go to luncheon together, intending to visit Devlin's room first for a drink apiece from a bottle of gin someone coming from Australia had smuggled into him. Well, O'Hara said when we were on the street again, this much is clear. If they went up to Devlin's room for a drink, it's a cinch that they were killed almost as soon as they got in the room. Those whiskey glasses you found were dry and clear. Whoever turned the trick must have been waiting for them. "'I wonder about this fellow Ingraham.' "'I'm wondering, too,' I said. "'Figuring it out from the positions I've found them in "'when I opened the closet door, "'Ingraham sizes up as the key to this whole thing.' Devlin was back against the wall, "'with Ansley in front of him, both facing the door. "'Ingraham was facing them, with his back to the door. "'This close-press was just large enough "'for them to be packed in it, "'too small for any of them to slip down "'while the door was closed.' then there was no blood in the room except what had come from the clothes-press ingram with that gaping slit in his back couldn't have been stabbed until he was inside the closet or he'd have bled elsewhere he was standing close to the other men when he was knifed and whoever knifed him closed the door quickly afterward now why should he have been standing in such a position do you dope it out that he and another killed a, two friends and that while he was stowing their bodies in the closet his accomplice finished him off Maybe. Dean said, and that maybe was still as far as we had gone three days later. We had sent and received bales of telegrams, having relatives and acquaintances of the dead man interviewed, and we had found nothing that seemed to have any bearing upon their deaths, nor had we found the slightest connecting link between Ingraham and the other two, we had traced those other two back step by step almost to their cradles. We had accounted for every minute of their time since Ingraham had arrived in San Francisco thoroughly enough to convince us that neither of them had met Ingraham. Ingraham, we had learned, was a bookmaker and all around crooked gambler. His wife and he had separated but were on good terms. Some fifteen years before, he had been convicted of assault with intent to kill in Newark, New Jersey and had served two years in the state prison. But the man he had assaulted, one John Pellow, had died of pneumonia in Omaha in 1914. Ingraham had come to San Francisco for the purpose of opening a gambling club, and all our investigations had tended to show that his activities while in the city had been toward that end alone. The fingerprints Fells had secured had all turned out to belong to Stacy, the maid, the police detectives, or myself, in short we had found nothing so much for our attempts to learn the motive behind the three murders we now dropped that angle and settled down to the detail studying patience taxing grind of picking up the murderer's trail from any crime to its author there is a trail it may be as in this case obscure but since matter cannot move without disturbing other matter along its path there always is There must be a trail of some sort, and finding and following such trails is what a detective is paid to do. In the case of a murder, it is possible sometimes to take a shortcut to the end of the trail by first finding the motive. A knowledge of the motive often reduces the field of possibilities, sometimes points directly to the guilty one. It is on this account that murderers are, as a rule, more easily apprehended than any other class of criminals but a knowledge of the motive isn't indispensable quite a few murder mysteries are solved without its help and in a fair proportion say ten to twenty per cent of cases where men are convicted justly of murder the motive isn't clearly shown even at the last and sometimes is hardly guessed at so far all we knew about the motive in the particular case we were dealing with was that it hadn't been robbery unless something we didn't know about had been stolen something of sufficient value to make the murderer scorn the money in his victim's pockets. We hadn't altogether neglected the search for the murderer's trail, of course, but, being human, we had devoted most of our attention to trying to find a shortcut. Now we set out to find our man, or men, regardless of what had urged him or them to commit the crimes. Of the people who had been registered at the hotel on the day of the killing, there were nine men of whose innocence we hadn't found a reasonable amount of proof four of these were still at the hotel and only one of that four interested us very strongly that one a big raw-boned man of forty-five or fifty who had registered as j j cooper of anaconda montana wasn't we had definitely established really a mining man as he pretended to be and our telegraphic communications with anaconda failed to show that he was known there therefore we were having him shadowed with few results Five men of the nine had departed since the murders, three of them leaving forwarding addresses with a mail clerk. Gilbert Jacquemart had occupied room 946 and had ordered his mail forwarded to him at a Los Angeles hotel. W. F. Salway, who had occupied room 1022, had given instructions that his mail be readdressed to a number on Clark Street in Chicago. Ross orrit room 609, had asked to have his mail sent to him care of general delivery at the local post-office. Jacques Mart had arrived at the hotel two days before, and had left on the afternoon of the murders. Salway had arrived the day before the murders, and had left the day after them. Orrit had arrived on the day of the murders, and had left the following day. Sending telegrams to have the first two found and investigated, I went after Orrit myself. A musical comedy named What For?, as being widely advertised just then with gaily printed plum-colored handbills, I got one of them, and at a stationery store an envelope to match, and mailed it to Orrit at the Montgomery Hotel. There are concerns that make a practice of securing the names of arrivals at the principal hotels and mailing them advertisements. I trusted that Oret, knowing this, wouldn't be suspicious when my gaudy envelope, forwarded from the hotel, reached him through the general delivery window." Dick Foley, the agency's shadow specialist, planted himself in the post office to loiter about with an eye on the O window until he saw my plum-colored envelope passed out, and then to shadow the receiver. I spent the next day trying to solve the mysterious J.J. Cooper's game, but he was still a puzzle when I knocked off that night. At a little before five the following morning, Dick Foley dropped into my room on his way home to wake me up and tell me what he had done for himself. "'This or it, baby, is our meat,' he said. "'Picked him up when he got his mail yesterday afternoon. "'Got another letter besides yours. "'Got an apartment on Van Ness Avenue. "'Took it the day after the killing under the name of B. T. Quinn. "'Packing a gun under his left arm. "'There's that sort of bulge there. "'Just went home to bed. "'Been visiting all the dives in North Beach. "'Who do you think he's hunting for? "'Who? "'Guy Cudner.' "'That was news.' This Guy Cudner, alias The Dark Man, was the most dangerous bird on the coast, if not in the country. He had only been nailed once, but if he had been convicted of all the crimes that everybody knew he had committed, he'd have needed half a dozen lives to crowd his sentences into, besides another half-dozen to carry to the gallows. However, he had decidedly the right sort of backing, enough to buy him everything he needed in the way of witnesses, alibis, even juries, and so the talk went an occasional judge. I don't know what went wrong with his support that one time he was convicted up north and sent over for a one-to-fourteen-year hitch, but it adjusted itself promptly, for the ink was hardly dry on the press notices of his conviction before he was loose again on parole. Is Cudner in town? Dunno, Dick said, but this Orrit, or Quinn, or whatever his name is, is surely hunting for him in Rick's place, at Wap Healy's and at Pagati's porky grout tipped me off says orrit doesn't know cudner by sight but is trying to find him porky did not know what he wants with him this porky grout was a dirty little rat who would sell out his family if he ever had one for the price of a flop but with these lads who play both sides of the game it's always a question of which side they're playing when you think they're playing yours think porky was coming clean i asked chances are but you can't gamble on him Is Orid acquainted here? Doesn't seem to be. Knows where he wants to go, but has to ask how to get there. Hasn't spoken to anybody that seemed to know him. What's he like? Not the kind of egg you want to tangle with offhand, if you ask me. He and Cudner would make a good pair. They don't look alike. This egg is tall and slim, but he's built right. Those fast, smooth muscles. Face is sharp without being thin, if you get me. I mean all the lines in it are straight no curves chin nose mouth eyes all straight sharp lines and angles looks like the kind of egg we know cudner is make a good pair dresses well and doesn't look like a rowdy but harder than hell a big game hunter our meat i bet you it doesn't look bad i agreed he came to the hotel the morning of the day the men were killed and checked out the next morning he packs a rod and changed his name after he left, and now he's paired off with the dark man. It doesn't look bad at all. "'I'm telling you,' Dick said, "'this fellow looks like three killings wouldn't disturb his rest any. I wonder where Cudner fits in.' I can't guess, but if he and Orrin haven't connected yet, then Cudner wasn't in on the murders. But he may give us the answer.' Then I jumped out of bed. "'I'm going to gamble on Porky's dope being on the level.' How would you describe Cudner? You know him better than I do. Yes, but how would you describe him to me if I didn't know him? A little fat guy with a red forked scar on his left cheek. What's the idea? It's a good one, I admitted. That scar makes all the difference in the world. If he didn't have it and you were to describe him, you'd go into all the details of his appearance. But he has it, so you simply say, "'a little fat guy with a red-forked scar on his left cheek. "'It's a ten-to-one that that's just how he has been described to Orrett. "'I don't look like Cudner, but I'm his size and build, "'and with a scar on my face, Orrit will fall for me.' "'What then?' "'There's no telling, but I ought to be able to learn a lot "'if I can get Orrit talking to me as Cudner. "'It's worth a try, anyway.' "'You can't get away with it. Not in San Francisco. "'Cudner's too well known.' What difference does that make, Dick? Or it is the only one I want a fool. If he takes me for Kudner, well and good. If he doesn't, still well and good. I won't force myself on him. How are you going to fake the scar? Easy. We have pictures of Cudner, showing the scar, in the criminal gallery. I'll get some collodion. It's sold in drug stores under several trade names for putting on cuts and scratches. Color it and imitate Cudner's scar on my cheek. It dries with a shiny surface and put on thick will stand out just enough to look like an old scar. It was a little after eleven the following night when Dick telephoned me that Orrit was in Peggotty's place on Pacific Street and apparently settled there for some little while. My scar already painted on, I jumped into a taxi and within a few minutes was talking to Dick around the corner from Pagotti's. He's sitting at the last table back on the left side and he was alone when I came out. You can't miss him. He's the only egg in the joint with a clean collar. You better stick outside, half a block or so away, with a taxi, I told Dick. Maybe Brother Orrit and I will leave together, and I'd just as leave have you standing by in case things break wrong. Pagotti's place is a long, narrow, low-ceilinged cellar, always dim with smoke. Down the middle runs a narrow strip of bare floor for dancing. The rest of the floor is covered with closely packed tables, whose claws are always soiled, and the management hasn't yet verified the rumor that the country has gone dry. Most of the tables were occupied when I came in, and half a dozen couples were dancing. Few of the faces to be seen were strangers to the morning line-up at police headquarters. Peering through the smoke, I saw Orrit at once, seated alone in a far corner, looking at the dancers with the set blank face of one who masks an all-seeing watchfulness. I walked down the other side of the room and crossed the strip of dance floor directly under a light so that the scar might be clearly visible to him. Then I selected a vacant table not far from his and sat down facing him. Ten minutes passed while he pretended an interest in the dancers, and I affected a thoughtful stare at the dirty cloth on my table, but neither of us missed so much as a flicker of the other's lids. His eyes, gray eyes that were pale without being shallow, with black needle-point pupils, met mine after a while in a cold, steady, inscrutable stare, and very slowly he got to his feet. One hand, his right, in a side pocket of his dark coat, he walked straight across to my table and sat down opposite me. "'Cardner, looking for me, I hear,' I replied, trying to match the icy smoothness of his voice as I was matching the steadiness of his gaze." He had sat down with his left side turned slightly toward me, which put his right arm in not too cramped a position for straight shooting from the pocket that still held his hand. You were looking for me, too. I didn't know what the correct answer to that would be, so I just grinned. But the grin didn't come from my heart. I had, I realized, made a mistake, one that might cost me something before we were done. This bird wasn't hunting for Cudner as a friend, as I had carelessly assumed, but was on the warpath. I saw those three dead men falling out of the closet in room 906. My gun was inside the waistband of my trousers, where I could get it quickly, but his was in his hand, so I was careful to keep my own hands motionless on the edge of the table while I widened my grin. His eyes were changing now, and the more I looked at them the less I liked them. The gray in them had darkened and grown duller, and the pupils were larger, and white crescents were showing beneath the gray twice before i had looked into eyes such as these and i hadn't forgotten what they meant the eyes of the congenital killer suppose you speak your piece i suggested after a while but he wasn't to be beguiled into conversation he shook his head a mere fraction of an inch and the corners of his compressed mouth dropped down a trifle the white crescents of eyeballs were growing broader pushing the gray circles up under the upper lids it was coming and there was no use waiting for it. I drove a foot at his shins under the table, and at the same time pushed the table into his lap and threw myself across it. The bullet from his gun went off to one side. Another bullet, not from his gun, thudded into the table that was upended between us. I had him by the shoulders when the second shot from behind took him in the left arm, just below my hand. I let go then, and fell away, rolling over against the wall and twisting around to face the direction from which the bullets were coming. I twisted around just in time to see, jerking out of sight behind a corner of the passage that gave to a small dining-room Guy Cudner's scarred face, and as it disappeared a bullet from Orrit's gun splattered the plaster from the wall where it had been. I grinned at the thought of what must be going on in Orrit's head as he lay sprawled out on the floor confronted by two Cudners, but he took a shot at me just then and I stopped grinning luckily he had to twist around to fire at me putting his weight on his wounded arm and the pain made him wince spoiling his aim before he had adjusted himself more comfortably i had scrambled on hands and knees to bigotti's kitchen door only a few feet away and had myself safely tucked out of range behind an angle in the wall all but my eyes and the top of my head which i risked now so that i might see what went on or it was now ten or twelve feet from me, lying flat on the floor, facing Cudner with a gun in his hand and another on the floor beside him. Across the room, perhaps thirty feet away, Cudner was showing himself around his protecting corner at brief intervals to exchange shots with a man on the floor, occasionally sending one my way. We had the place to ourselves. There were four exits, and the rest of Peggotty's customers had used them all. I had my gun out, but I was playing a waiting game. Cudner, i figured had been tipped off to orrit's search for him and had arrived on the scene with no mistaken idea of the other's attitude just what there was between them and what bearing it had on the montgomery murders was a mystery to me but i didn't try to solve it now i kept away from the bullets that were flying around as best i could and waited they were firing in unison Cudner would show around his corner both men's weapons would spit and he would duck out of sight again or it was bleeding about the head now and one of his legs sprawled crookedly behind him i couldn't determine whether cudner had been hit or not each had fired eight or perhaps nine shots when cudner suddenly jumped out into full view pumping his gun in his left hand as fast as its mechanism would go the gun in his right hand hanging at his side or it had changed guns and was on his knees now his fresh weapon keeping pace with his enemies that couldn't last Cudner dropped his left-hand gun, and as he raised the other, he sagged forward and went down on one knee. Orrit stopped firing abruptly and fell over on his back, spread out full length. Cudner fired once more, wildly, into the ceiling, and pitched down on his face. I sprang to Orrit's side and kicked both of his guns away. He was lying still, but his eyes were open. "'Are you Cudner? Oh, is he?' "'He?' Bud. he said, and closed his eyes. I crossed to where Cudner lay and turned him over on his back. His chest was literally shot to pieces. His thick lips worked, and I put my ear down to them. I get him. Yes, I lied. He's already cold. His dying face twisted into a triumphant grin. Sorry. Three in, hotel. He gasped hoarsely. Mistake. Wrong room. Got one. Had to. Other two protect myself i he shuddered and died a week later the hospital people let me talk to Orrit. i told him what cudner had said before he died that's the way i had doped it out Orrit said from the depths of the bandages in which he was swathed that's why i moved and changed my name the next day i suppose you've got it nearly figured out by now he said after a while no i confessed i haven't I have an idea what it was all about, but I could stand having a few details cleared up. I'm sorry I can't clear them up for you, but I got to cover myself up. I'll tell you a story, though, and it may help you. Once upon a time there was a high-class crook, what the newspapers call a mastermind. came a day when he found he had accumulated enough money to give up the game and settle down as an honest man. But he had two lieutenants one in New York and one in San Francisco, and they were the only men in the world who knew he was a crook. And besides that, he was afraid of both of them, so he thought he'd rest easier if they were out of the way. And it happened that neither of these lieutenants had ever seen the other. So this mastermind convinced each of them that the other was double-crossing him and would have to be bumped off for the safety of all concerned, and both of them fell for it. The New Yorker went to San Francisco to get the other, and the San Franciscan was told that the New Yorker would arrive on such-and-such a day and would stay at such-and-such a hotel. The mastermind figured out there was an even chance of both men passing out when they met, and he was nearly right at that, but he was sure that one would die, and then, even if the other missed hanging, there would be only one man left for him to dispose of later, There weren't as many details in the story as I would like to have, but it explained a lot. How do you figure out Cudner's getting into the wrong room? I asked. (laughs) That was funny. Maybe it happened like this. My room was 6.09, and the killing was done in 9.06. Suppose Cudner went to the hotel on the day he knew I was due and took a quick slant at the register. He wouldn't want to be seen looking at it if he could avoid it, and so he didn't turn it around, but flashed a look at it as it lay, facing the desk. When you read numbers of three figures upside down, you have to transpose them in your head to get them straight, like one, two, three. You'd get that three, two, one, and then turn them around in your head. That's what Cudner did with mine. He was keyed up, of course, thinking of the job ahead of him, and he overlooked the fact that six o nine upside down still reads six o nine just the same so he turned it around and made it nine o six devlin's room that's how i doped it i said and i reckon it's about right and then he looked at the key rack and saw that nine o six wasn't there so he thought he might just as well get his job done right then when he could roam the hotel corridors without attracting attention of course he may have gone up to the room before Ansley and devlin came in and waited for them but i doubt it i think it more likely that he simply happened to arrive at the hotel a few minutes after they had come in Ansley was probably alone in the room when cudner opened the unlocked door and came in devlin being in the bathroom getting the glasses Ansley was about your size and age and close enough in appearance to fit a rough description of you cudner went for him and then devlin hearing the scuffle, dropped the bottle and glasses and rushed out, and got his. Cudner, being the sort he was, would figure that two murders were no worse than one, and he wouldn't want to leave any witnesses around. And that is probably how Ingram got into it. He was passing on his way from his room to the elevator, and perhaps heard the racket and investigated, and Cudner put a gun in his face and made him stow the two bodies in the clothes press, and then he stuck his knife in Ingram's back— and slammed the door on him that's about the an indignant nurse descended on me from behind and ordered me out of the room accusing me of getting her patient excited or it stopped me as i turned to go keep your eye on the new york dispatches he said and maybe you'll get the rest of the story it's not over yet nobody has anything on me out here the shooting in pegatis was self-defense so far as i'm concerned And as soon as I'm on my feet again and can get back east, there's going to be a mastermind holding a lot of lead. That's a promise. I believed him. End of Bodies Piled Up End of Five Continental Op Stories by Dashiell Hammett Read by Winston Tharp